You have made it to Brave to the Bone podcast, where we explore human courage in its boldest form, self-transformation. What does it take to leap into the unknown? What builds bravery to become a purpose-driven and authentic leader in your life? I am so grateful to bring you such a wonderful storyteller. Quentin Salutas is a Santa Cruz community leader and recovery specialist. What's amazing is his Native American heritage of the Coquilla tribe became a foundation for his spiritual healing, specifically moving him from a place of complicated drug addiction to a place of being a community healer and one that helps others in their own, their recovery. His descriptions about what recovery is and how to get out of your own way is invaluable. This is for everyone. Enjoy. Good morning, Quentin. Thank you so much for being here on this Saturday. Um, It was wonderful talking with you the other day, and I'm really excited for you to share a little bit about your path. Um, Can you tell us about what you're doing for a living and what you do for fun now and introduce yourself? Of course. Uh, My name is uh, Quentin Saludes. I've been living in Santa Cruz for for the most part since about 1990. I am right now working uh, as the intake coordinator at New Life Community Services in Santa Cruz. We are a six-month drug and alcohol treatment facility. For fun, uh, I like to do some traveling. I like to surf and, uh, you know, just kind of mix it up with uh, some of my friends and sports and such. Yeah, so a little bit about um, our call yesterday um, or the other day was really fascinating because we got to speak about um, how you kind of went through a big transition in your life starting back when you were younger. Can you tell tell us a little bit about what you were doing before when you were kind of in some trouble and had to make some significant changes that brought you into transformation? Well, the transformation really has to do with going from uh, having a lifestyle which included drug use and some kind of times way out on the fringes. And if we go way back, I guess I'm a in on on one side of the coin. I'm a little unlikely candidate for uh, being caught up in some um, drug issues because I was raised well. And I have an education, and I've always held down a job, been a world traveler. So I've had all these things which have gone positive for me. But I also had somewhat of a liberal uh, upbringing, which allowed me to do uh, various experimentations with uh, different substances. And uh, some people will say when they were growing up, the first time that they ever, I don't know, smoked a joint, used a bong, tried cocaine or whatever, was with me. And uh, so I did a lot of firsts with a lot with a lot of people, and this just kind of went on for decades. I was um, I experimented. I uh, used drugs for a recreation, and at different times I used them for more than recreation. And I should say about fifteen or seventeen, I don't know, fifteen years ago or more, I started using drugs um, kind of exclusively exclusively so much that uh, they were, for the most part, the only thing that mattered. I was using drugs to pay my bills. I was using drugs to escape pain. I was using drugs to escape family or responsibilities. I was using drugs for just about uh, everything in my life. I wasn't uh, showing up for family events and 
I, my circle of life and friends had gotten smaller and smaller. I had basically isolated myself into a, um, a small little cohort of people who were doing the same things as I. How old were you at this point? Um, I think I was around 35, 36 or so when I was doing that. And it felt like a fine lifestyle. You weren't really looking for a change at that point, right? You were just rolling, no. rolling right along. I was having fun. I was still believing that I was uh, young and could get away with whatever I was getting away with. I'd never really been in trouble. so um, And I'd never really had any health uh, consequences with any of my drug use. And so I was still thinking I was invincible. Yeah. yeah. And you were using whatever, lots of different things. So you weren't exclusive to a particular drug. Is that true? Or I was using a lot of different things throughout the years. Ultimately, the drug that kind of uh, brought me to my knees, if I will, was meth. That was the one that I was using primarily. And that's the one I was selling primarily. However, you know, you could pretty much get in whatever you wanted from me at the time. And so what happened, what led you to the, the realization that there was going to be a change? You know, I never knew there was going to be a change. I just really was just living my life, doing what I was doing, and basically just kind of surviving day to day. And what had happened was I had gotten, um, you know, a, like a, an arrest for having, you know, a very, very small amount of drugs on my person. And so I was going through the initial stages of being in the um, in the system, if you will, you know, having to go on probation, having to go to weekly uh, meetings or something of that uh, nature. And then throughout the, the years, I had been developing these relationships with different people in the community who were um, career criminals and who were deep in the game in Santa Cruz and Santa Cruz for being a small town and being, you know, this kind of little pocket of paradise also has some very deep roots that goes into some very uh, hardcore drug use and very hardcore criminality. And what I found myself basically was having very few contacts with police and then having a lot of contacts with some kind of heavy hitters in this county. And there were a couple people who I was associated with that ended up committing murder. And when the police were building a homicide case against these people, someone had pointed me out as a possible uh, source of information. Um, that I knew something possibly about the people or the circumstances that happened, which caused this one person's disappearance and ultimate death. And what the uh, officers did at the time, the detectives, is they probably looked up my rap sheet and found out that I really didn't have one. And so they set forth to get me one. And so I was arrested several times and I was charged with several different offenses and I was approached and I was offered a deal. If you tell what you know about this incident, then you can walk free. And I really had to take a, a clear look at myself and, and decide, is that what I wanted to do? 
what's going to happen in my future if I testify in court against these career criminals? And I thought to myself and said, if I can walk away from the lifestyle of selling drugs, if I can walk away from the lifestyle of using drugs, uh, then I could probably get up on that stand, uh, tell them whatever I know, whatever it is I, I do know. And then I would have these charges thrown away and I could walk away a free man. Uh, and I looked at myself and my life and I realized I didn't have the wherewithal to do that. I didn't think I could walk away from the drug lifestyle. I didn't think that I could walk away from using. I was so entrenched in that lifestyle. I was unemployable. I was out of touch with what it takes to be a functioning member of society. Um, it had been too long since I had held that role in this or any society. I was out of touch with family and friends. And so I decided that what I was going to have to do was take my lumps, uh, not help out this investigation, and um, take the consequences uh, that had built up for me. So the consequences for me was a one-year sentence, which included six months in jail and six months in residential treatment. And that's what I did. So when you were saying that you were unemployable, did you graduate high school? I graduated college. Oh, you graduated college. So I had all the skills, all the know-how to be employable, but I was unemployable because I didn't have it within me to clean myself up, dry myself out, and get a job. I was living hand to mouth. I was uh, living, I can't even say paycheck to paycheck because it was hustle to hustle is what I was living. And uh, everything around me was crumbling at a steady pace. And it ended up with this incarceration and uh, being forced to go to uh, drug rehabilitation, which I come from this old school, which are, uh, you know, rehab is for quitters, you know, uh, people who felt like they could handle their substances. And so who needs to who needs to get help? I don't have a problem. And also, you said you lost touch with friends and family. So that meant that you didn't have a relationship with anybody who had a sober lifestyle. Not really. You know, there was there was still some things I was doing community based. I was still doing some volunteering with some wonderful, wonderful people uh, in this community. However, they didn't know what I was doing or to the depth of what I was doing. My um, other question that's a little bit complicated is, did you feel like you kind of had an idea of what your future would be like there? Or did you have a dream that looked like something different? Or were you kind of feeling like you were in a dead end that, that you might overdose one day? Or what, what, what was your hopelessness like? Or did you have hope? I was, I had gone through a period 20 years or so ago and had realized with all the drugs I had done in my life that there wasn't much more to learn from this drug lifestyle. There's not much more I could get out of it. And if I kept on going, it would end up in death. And <clears throat> so I actually stopped doing drugs for about three or four years and uh, moved in with a family member who had gone through the 12-step program and agreed that I wouldn't do drugs while I lived at that house. 
<clears throat> and I didn't do drugs for about, you know, uh, three and a half, four years. And looking back now, I was what they would call a dry drunk, even though alcohol was never um, a part of my story. Um, I didn't have recovery. I was abstinent without recovery. And so that was previous to this investigation, and then you ended up in the six months in jail. Yeah. I had um, moved back to Santa Cruz in about 2004 after I had spent uh, the three or four years in my hometown of Santa Rosa, and where I was not doing any drugs, just kind of working and um, putting some pounds on my waist, if you will, <laughs> working construction. When I came back to Santa Cruz, I had about a year or so of living here without doing any substances. And then I started dilly-dallying around uh, with um, getting high again. And that led me on a, a relatively quick path because it only took four or five years to get to new depths that I hadn't gone to before. And as far as hope, it's not like I didn't have hope. I just didn't have any plans for a future. I didn't have any thought of a future. I was turning 40, 41 years old, and I didn't even realize I was getting older. I was kind of in this stasis of life, which was this kind of vicious cycle of hustling and living and kind of doing what I was doing. And then a year would go by and another year would go by and another year would go by. And I wasn't moving forward and I was slowly sliding backwards. And so as far as look for hope, there was no idea of hope. There was no um, attempt at trying to get out of this vicious cycle. I was just in this holding pattern, which was not in a great space. I love your description of that. I think that people can really relate to that, that whole concept. So then you, you're in jail, and when we had talked, we talked a little bit about your heritage. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how it was kind of a place where you were looking for some sort of spirituality? Well, I am, uh, my heritage is a mixed heritage, and I identify with my Native American heritage. And there's been this... I mean, this is a whole nother conversation, but what we're talking about is there's been physical genocide and there has been cultural genocide attempts at Native American culture. When I was born, I was not a Native American. I did not become a Native American until I was around 20 years old. And what I mean by that was my tribe was terminated by the federal government and we did not have a tribal status when I was a young man or a child growing up. Our tribal members who continued to meet as a tribe, as a family, lobbied Congress in uh, 1989 and was once again uh, able to gain status as a federally recognized tribe. So when I was incarcerated in Santa Cruz County, I, I asked the chaplain uh, for a Native American sweat lodge to be uh, brought into the county jail facility out in Watsonville so that I could pray as I wanted to pray in a sweat lodge. And they, to their credit, uh, they made an effort to make that happen. Uh, and the best that I got was uh, some powwow drumming by someone who was uh, brought into the uh, jail facility to 
essentially uh, give me this opportunity for prayer. Uh, so I was not able to get a sweat lodge in there, but I was able to get a powwow drum and I gathered 20 to 30 other inmates who were really into checking this out and doing this. And we all got together and did this for several weeks in a row. I bet it was a beautiful experience because you have the spirit, like you're already this tremendous leader. And I bet while you were in that, that whole previous lifestyle, you were still a leader there. It's funny how someone can move through all these different, you know, contextual environments. And, and then when you finally land, you really, really rise. So was it new for that particular person that came and gave the drumming um, for them to, was it the first time they've ever been to a jail? Did it feel surreal and, and special? Funny you should ask that. The person who came to bring this to me in the jail had recently, before he was called and asked to bring that into the jail system, he had asked, he had prayed. And what he had prayed upon was he said, I want to be able to do ceremony as a way of life. And he prayed, um, you know, to the ancestors, to the great spirit, to make this happen for him. How can I give myself into over to ceremony? <clears throat> How can I do this for a way of life? And shortly thereafter, he got this uh, call from someone who was incarcerated who needed his help, and that was me. And that was about 10 years ago. And since then, he has taken that experience of working with me and he's turned it into several other positions and he is now the spiritual leader at um, a prison in central california so he has been able to take that experience with me and turn it into his life's path where it actually puts food on his table for he and his family that um, is unbelievable he's able to bring uh, ceremony to the people who most need it the people the native americans who are incarcerated in uh the state prison system in California. Do you feel like it also that situation made an impact on that 20 or 30 inmates that participated? I know that it gave those inmates a chance to understand ceremony and prayer in a different way. It gave them an opportunity to take part and witness something. Some of them uh, were aware of that type of prayer and some it was brand new to them. Wow, that's incredible. So that was pretty significant for you. And then, and then, but you kind of thought you were going to go back to your same lifestyle nonetheless. And then you entered into the, the, the six month recovery process of inpatient. Is that correct? Yeah. Well, essentially, what it comes down to is part of my sentence, because I got sentenced to do this time and to do this. Uh, to do this uh, rehabilitation program, I had no intention of stopping doing drugs. That's not what I was trying to do. I was tired of the cops recognizing my vehicle, pulling me over because I was in my own neighborhood, which was the lower ocean neighborhood of uh, Santa Cruz, which was a bit of a ghetto, you know, and just getting hassled because I had a minor record and so I went uh, and knew I was going to do everything I had to do when I went to jail and I was going to go into treatment. I'd never been into treatment before, but I was going to do whatever they asked of me uh, so that I could get off of probation as soon as I could and have the 
judge happy with what I was doing, to have my probation officer happy with what I was doing, and make all of this go away because I had never had to, I don't know, behave for law enforcement or anything of that nature. So that being said, um, I was ready to be compliant with whatever whatever was going to happen, but it wasn't my intention to stop doing drugs. That was just my lifestyle, and I wasn't going to stop selling drugs because that's how I made my money, and it's not like I was looking to do that so much as I didn't really have a plan. All I knew was I wanted all my immediate troubles to go away. My lifestyle was in such a vicious cycle that I dealt with whatever was going on right in front of me. If um, my vehicle broke down, that was a, a main concern. If I needed to pay rent wherever I was living by the end of that month, that was my main concern. If I was hungry that day, that was my main concern. I didn't think far out or didn't have any plans for one year, five years, ten years, or anything like that. So after I did my time in county jail, I was uh, brought to the treatment center um, and... When I came into the treatment center, I uh, got there and I was happy to uh, do whatever it takes to, you know, complete the program and uh, get this behind me. And it was interesting. The person who brought me in to pick me up from jail and brought me into treatment, I told him, hey, I can't wait to find out what's going on here. Do these groups and, you know, tackle this job. And he says, well, we'll see. And I thought, wow. He doesn't have a lot of uh, faith in me, and <laughs> I think that was very good encouragement. And I just didn't understand the reticism rate that he sees all of the time. And so going into treatment, I did everything that they asked me to. I paid attention to the rules. I uh, did my chores. I got some work and... Uh, went to all the groups and did all the assignments and everything of that nature. And I was there for a month or maybe a couple of months, and nothing was really changing for me. I kind of had a sense that if something doesn't change for me, then I'm going to complete six months of residential treatment I'm going to hit the street again, and I'm still not really going to be employable. And so I'll probably go right back to selling drugs because I'm good at it. And, uh, and I won't do any drugs. And then how long will that actually last? Probably not very long. And I had the ability... Part of the, I had the ability to meet up with the person who wanted to bring me the sweat lodge in the county jail. And the treatment center I went to required spiritual growth once a week. And it wasn't important that it was any certain denomination or any certain religion. It just had to be legitimate. So I got clearance to do Sweat Lodge every week as my spiritual growth, and I would drive out to Gilroy and meet with this gentleman, and we would do Sweat Lodges every week. We would, we would pray, we would sing, and uh, it was a wonderful way to get in touch uh, with my spirituality. 
because you really feel landed. I mean, when you're sweating and praying, do you really feel um, the spiritual like movement? Do you feel uplifted? And what is it like? A sweat lodge is a purification ceremony. And it can be very, very difficult. If you are wanting to purify your spirit, if there are things within you which are unpure and you really want to release those and get rid of those, that is not an easy thing for people to do. If you have toxins in your body, it's not always an easy process to get those toxins out of your body. If you are not used to having the temperature in a very small enclosed pitch black space uh, rise uh, well over 100 degrees, uh, it, it may not be pleasant for one to go through this ceremony. And it can actually bring someone to semi-hallucinatory um, uh, places because um, they're just trying to hold on throughout the ceremony. And so there are aspects of the ceremony which really, really call upon the person to um, suffer through uh, the process of uh, getting through um, aspects of the ceremony. And what I mean by suffer is it, you may be suffering because it's so hot, you want water and your skin is on fire and all you want to do is just go, just get out. But there's something powerful about being able to uh, endure the suffering uh, to submit to something that you can't control and and get through the ceremony and get through the other side. <clears throat> the songs are heaven sent and they really allow one to take their mind out of their body and to go along with, with the words in the song. If you don't know the words of the song, you know that they are prayers. You know that they're um, asking for help for you and your spirit and your health. And so... <clears throat> There's wonderful things going on, whether you realize uh, exactly what's going on or whether you don't realize exactly what's going on. And so this was a really grounding time for me while I was in uh, my uh, residential uh, treatment. Now, things were happening which I wasn't aware of at the time. So I didn't use any substances while I was in jail. I was in jail for a total of about four and a half months. And so by the time I was um, starting to really get into the rhythm of these sweat lodges, I had stopped using drugs for about six months. And um, changes started happening that I didn't necessarily even uh, realize at the time. And um, what I had done was I was doing the, the steps, is the 12 steps in, uh, in my re uh, rehabilitation center was required. And I was a bit of a hardhead. And so I was one of those people who was questioning things with my sponsor. Well, what's definition of is in this? What do you mean I have to do this? Why do I have? And I wanted to question every aspect of God, surrender, submit, uh, every aspect. And <clears throat> my sponsor was getting pretty exasperated with me. And um, when we got to the third step prayer and I wanted to argue about surrendering my, my will 
over to God and handing my will over to God, I, I was like, I wanted to argue about it. He goes, look, why don't you just do me a favor? Why don't you just do the, do the third step and just see what happens? If nothing happens, we can deal with it then. If something happens, we can talk about it later. So why don't you just do that for me instead of, you know, trying to pick it apart and see what happens. And I agreed. And now there are four rounds in a sweat lodge. And I think the next day I was in the sweat lodge. And in between the rounds, when the door opens up and we get a little bit of fresh air and relief, there's an opportunity for each person to ask for prayers or to uh, ask for prayers for someone else or to speak what's on their mind. And I took that time to, um, to quote the third step prayer. And I said it out loud. And it felt a little bit uncomfortable because not everybody in the sweat lodge is in recovery or knows what I'm talking about. And I did it anyway. Can you tell us what it is for those of the people who are listening who don't know? The third step prayer really calls for you to turn your will and your life over to the care of God. And uh, in doing that, what you're acknowledging is that Addiction is stronger than any one of us. And there are some scientific, there's some science behind that. Where addiction resides in the part of your brain is the strongest part of your brain. The reasoning part of your brain is not the strongest part of your brain. So even though you would reason away why you shouldn't do drugs, I shouldn't do drugs because I'll lose my job, I'll lose my family, I'll lose my life. Those are all reasoning and bargaining, and that all happens in the front part of your brain. Where addiction resides is in the back part of your brain, right at the top of the brainstem, and that's 50 times stronger than any other part of your brain. So when that addiction takes over, it's like a 300-pound gorilla fighting with a child. There's no way that you can outsmart your own brain. And so in that way, one is truly powerless. And when we say that we are turning our will and our lives over to the care of God, what we're saying is I'm accepting whatever help that you can give me, God. I am accepting whatever you can grant me in this challenge that I have with this addiction. And... You don't even have to believe in God. You don't even have to believe in a higher power. You just have to go through this process and make this request, and that gift can be granted to you. And it was granted to me. And it didn't happen that day. It didn't happen the next day. But it did come in the form of about a week and a half, about a week or so later. I was uh, going through a Bible study course at the treatment center where I was being treated. And after this Bible study course, the person who was leading it, who is also a professor at a local university who teaches a drug and alcohol uh, course in college so that one can learn how to become a drug and alcohol counselor, asked those of us who are in attendance, uh, if, there, if you know anybody, who would like to become a drug and alcohol counselor, or if any of you want to become a drug and alcohol counselor, why don't you come see me after uh, this Bible study and we'll talk about it. 
And I got that far away look in my eye because I had already graduated from college and I was had always wanted to go back to college. And uh, this person, Steve Stiles, uh, looked at me and said, hey, Quentin, why don't you come on over here and we'll talk about it. And he said, I have classes starting. They will be starting. And this was on a Sunday morning. He says, these classes will be starting uh, next Friday. So now I knew what it took to... Uh, to get accepted to go to college and it takes a lot more it takes more than a week to get accepted to go to a college course there are essays you have to write uh, there's an application you have to do there's funding you have to get there's transcripts that you have to get all this has to be done and handed in and usually it takes a while to do that and i decided you know what i'm gonna do it i'm gonna try it and when the classes start next friday evening uh, and I'm not there, it won't be for lack of trying. At least I'll, I'll give the old college try. And had to run around to the college I went to, a couple colleges I'd went to before, get all this paperwork done, file all these papers, uh, request money, do all these different things. And lo and behold, by Wednesday, I was enrolled and ready to go to classes two days later. It was nothing short of a miracle. And it took me a while to understand that I had turned my will and uh, my life over to the care of God. And this is how God showed up for me, was to give me this opportunity to go back into college. And once that happened, uh, a shift really started happening for me. Because not only was I going to uh, nightly groups, weekly counseling, and educational courses uh, during the uh, evenings of my rehabilitation program, I was also getting uh, full credits of college courses at the same time, learning how to become a drug and alcohol counselor. Uh, I think one of the problems with me and with a lot of people who go into treatment is I think we think, I'll, I'll say this for me, I think I think I'm smarter than the rest of the people here. I think I can think my way out of my problems. I think I can solve my addiction. And if I had only done the six months of residential treatment, I would have gotten my little graduation certificate, pinned it onto my chest, showed up to court and said, yes, I'm all good. And the court would have been happy. Judge would have been happy. Probation would have been happy. But I would not have made it through. I would not have gotten recovery. And as Steve Stiles said, Recovery is like a gift. And when you ask someone, how do you know whether you're in recovery? It's kind of like that, that love question. How do you know you're in love? Well, you know because you can feel it. You know you're in recovery because you're doing it. You're That's being beautiful. It. I've never heard that before. I love that description. And I was needing those college courses to, to really – demonstrate for me how I was powerless to this addiction, uh, how these addictions were affecting me and my culture, what the difficulties were that I had experienced throughout my life that I had not even taken into account. And most of these lectures that I received were not lectures that one would receive while in a typical uh, rehabilitation uh, treatment episode. So 
that gave me a chance to extend essentially my the educational part of my um, my treatment episode another five or six months and, and it kept it going for me and there was a, something else that I was realizing once I was coming out of this fog of, of using drugs for almost three decades from from the time I started using meth just the first time I ever did it at 15 years old by the time I stopped at 42 that's 27 years that I had and I wasn't uh, down in the uh, gutter attic the whole time. No, I wasn't. But I had used drugs for that long a time. Sometimes there was a couple of years I didn't. Sometimes there was a couple of years I did a lot. And as I was coming out of the fog after several months, six months, ten months, I started realizing something else. I started realizing, I says, I'm 42 years old. You know, I can't climb up onto ladders and paint under the eaves of second-story buildings without insurance. One fall, and I'm a goner. I've got to do something different with my life. And uh, I can't waste the education that I've, I've, I've gained throughout uh, my early years and my later years. I have to put it uh, to work. And um, my calling always has been to help people. So... I've always done some volunteer work of some sort throughout my life, whether I was experimenting with drugs, whether I was addicted to drugs, or whether I'd been off drugs. And so it was not a far stretch for me to parlay this education that I, I gained with uh, learning how to become a drug and alcohol counselor and, and working in the drug and alcohol treatment field. And that's what I'm doing to this day. Wow, that's amazing. So um, how are you feeling now? Like, you know, you described being in recovery, almost like you're in love. Do you still feel that passion about being alive and sober? I feel it now as much or more than ever. And there's something that goes along with being an addict, and that is the desire to get high never goes away. You know, I still want to get high and I still like I, I have these memories and some people have memories of the good times when they're using and some people have memories of the bad times when they're using. I always seem to think about the good times and I always want to recapture those good times. And luckily for me, something, uh, you know, cracks open my skull and, and just uh, reminds me that uh, it's not going to be good. You can try to recapture that, but it's it's not going to be like how you remember it was. And and part of it, I don't know if it's just uh, having gotten older, but like my body's changing, my hair color has changed, and all these different things have changed. And so the, um, I don't know, the effervescence of, of those days of using, uh, I don't think uh, are going to be the same. And that's one of the things that allows me to look at what I do have right now. And the, the, I have had a couple of injuries um, during recovery, and I was able to get through it because I actually am taking care of myself. I'm, I'm eating well. I am uh, seeing a doctor on a regular basis. Uh, going to a doctor was something I never did. Uh, going to a dentist was something that I never did. I started taking care of myself in a different way and um, understanding my body in a different way. When I used to take advantage of my <clears throat> youthful strength and youthful abilities, I don't take advantage of that anymore. I appreciate it in a different way. And I'm able to connect in a different way with my family. 
I'm able to be there for them when there are hardships in my family. I'm able to be there uh, for them uh, in a financially stable way. I'm able to be there for them during holidays and, and uh, get-togethers in ways that I haven't done for a lot of my adult life. So well, what I've been able to get through being in recovery is, is much more uh, beneficial than, than not being in recovery. And um, you, there was something you said a little bit earlier, which is really correct. If I have this charisma, if I have this leadership about me, um, I probably had it when I was using, and I did. You know, I had the place where everybody wanted to come and hang out, and I did have my charisma, and I did have my leadership there, and I was uh, king of my own castle in that arena. And um, it was fun while it lasted, but it was not really benefiting anyone in a really positive way. It benefited people to the end of their nose, and that was it. And what I am doing now is benefiting people in the long term. You know, I work at a treatment center, and I'm uh, helping to facilitate people getting help. I still volunteer. I feed the homeless, and I uh, volunteer with uh, disabled, uh, differently disabled children, getting them out into the ocean so that they can enjoy and experience that environment. And so these things are what really provides joy in my life and meaning in my life. That's beautiful. I really love your story because you don't have a plan. You didn't really expect recovery. It just kind of happened. And it was really interesting with the sweat lodges. Do you still do them? I do still sweat. And I still sweat with the same person who I sweated when I was in jail. Wow. Yes. So it's a lifelong connection. Oh, well, I had sweat several times um, in my life throughout the years. And so sweat lodge was not new to me. It was something that I really was needing and my spirit was calling for. That's why I reached for it while I was incarcerated. And um, when I was on my path with drugs, that was my path. And so if you can imagine um, all of the intention and all of the presence that I uh, inhabit in my life right now, in my recovery and with my family and in my community, I did the same while I was on that path with drugs. And that was uh, an important part of my life while I was in that part of my life. And that I have made it out of that and gotten back onto the good road, the red road, as we call it, then this is so much more of an impactful way for me to live and, and to be. Uh, yes, I still do sweat lodges. And yes, I bring people to sweat lodges as often as I can. And I hope to be running sweat lodges uh, right here in Santa Cruz sometime soon, if I could find the location to do it in. Oh, I send out good vibes for that manifestation. I would love to be a part of it. I'd love to come. You are certainly welcome to. Yeah, so, and then I know that you were talking about, you also have a love for writing and, and storytelling. Has that, um, with your presence, has that come through at all in the recovery and the help, the, the, your personal stories, has that also helped those that are in recovery? Well, yes. Uh, you had mentioned um, about my passion being helping others in recovery. And, you know, and what I had told you at that time was, you know, helping people in recovery is something that I love to do, something that I've been trained to do, something that I am effective at doing. And my passion is helping people. 
And I have a very, very good ability to tell a story. And uh, my initial education was uh, as in creative writing. So I have a, a bachelor's of arts in creative writing. And so I am a born storyteller. And so that is where part of my passion continues to call me. And when we talk about courage, sometimes I think that I lack the courage to embrace uh, that aspect of myself. And I don't necessarily know why, but I'm always nipping at the edge of it because I'm always sharing my story and I'm always telling my story. And I think the next step is really just to put it down on paper so that it can be lasting and be shared with more people in, in more different places. Yeah, you know, being a professional storyteller is a real thing and it's such a cool thing. And if you were able to be doing these sweat lodges and um, doing storytelling there too, it would just be so beautiful. I think well, that's, that's a great path. That's what we do. I mean, we just kick back and talk story. I mean, and that's, it's the same thing that happens in a, in a, in a barbershop, uh, you know, in, in urban communities. It's, it's the place where you meet and it's the place where you talk story. And so we do keep that tradition going as we go. And I <laughs> obviously I've got a lot of stories and they're very colorful stories. <laughs> Some of them are, are not appropriate for children. <laughs> they sure are fun though. <laughs> that's wonderful. So if you could give a few, um, pointers. I mean, there's a lot of people stuck in a lot of different ways. And I feel like you meeting your edge and taking that leap was interesting because you didn't really see the edge until it came upon you until you were working with that sponsor. And he said, just do it anyway. And then you had the spiritual outlet to go to the sweat lodge and say the prayer and just say, fine, I'm going to do it. And that was your leap. And then things started to really transform and you spent the rest of your life in this act of service. Um, I just find that I think it's hard for people to see their edge just like you did. Is there anything, any advice that you would have for anybody struggling to have the courage to step up to the change that they may need to make? I don't know if I could accurately advise anybody else on what they should do in their life. So to, in response to your question, let me just look closely back on my life and see what kind of worked for me to get over that edge and through that time. And when I look back, I think for me, it really had to do with the belief that I already knew what to do when that wasn't the truth. So for me, it was about uh, de-emphasizing my ego it was about submitting. It was about taking advice. It was about when asking for help and someone offers you help, taking the help. I was not one to ask for help. I was not one to accept help. And I found myself in a situation um, in a vicious circle down at the bottom of the pit. And I could not do it. Everything I was doing for myself kept on uh, corkscrewing down. And it wasn't until I realized I can't do this alone. Um, how can I be helped? And part of it was the system. I got into the system and the system put me into jail where you really don't have any freedoms. And then the first freedoms I have was a, 
a treatment center. And some of those rules are just some basic rules. And I'm an adult. And why, what do you mean I have to go to bed at 10 o'clock at night? I'll do what I want. And I just realized I'm going to do exactly what they told me because what I thought was appropriate, that's what got me here. And so I am going to take whatever assistance I can to lift me up out of where I was. And once I started doing that, I slowly, step by step, made my way back, not only to where I was, but I have exceeded where I've been in the past. Uh, now I can look forward to a future and some security in my life. And I have a community that loves me and surrounds me with open arms and holds me tight. And I have a family that I can be present with in ways that I haven't been present with them since I was a child. So uh, that's my only advice is to sometimes just get out of your own way and accept whatever assistance um, that you can get from the friends and the family that you have because they love you and they know you. They, your friends who you've been with for years, they know you sometimes better than you know yourself. And they're not looking out for your worst interests when they suggest something for you. They're looking out for your best interests. They want the best for you. And so humble yourself and accept that assistance. Wow, Quentin, thank you so much. I, I mean, I can, what I can feel most from you is you have this amazing um, just feeling of presence, like you're like this really ancient soul of a mountain. So I'm just really, really grateful that you were here to share your story and that um, you're able to articulate it in such a really relatable way. So thank you so much. I'd love to have you. I'd love to have you again for more of your stories. And I'd really like to hear them, um, even the ones that are not x-rated. So um, thank course. you so much. Of course, Tanya. Thank you for uh, reaching out to me. And I uh, sure appreciate this opportunity to uh, share my story with you. Thanks. This is Tanya Gilbert, host of Brave to the Bone podcast. If you're looking for more, you can look at my website, bravetothebone.com. Also on Facebook, Brave to the Bone, and on Instagram at I am Brightwater. I'm here to help. There's a lot of platforms that we're building containers where people can meet their edge and they don't have to do it alone. We are here to support you in so many different levels. Many blessings.